Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Frank Price, Vice President of the Northern California Peace Corps Association, a Shriver Circle leader of the National Peace Corps Association, and most importantly, Vice Chair of the Commonwealth Club's International Relations Member-Led Forum. I have a couple of housekeeping announcements before I introduce the panel for the, fu- the future of chocolate. While this program is free, we would be delighted if you go to the commonwealthclub.org site to donate. Special thanks to those of you who have already donated. We are the nation's oldest and largest public affairs forum and a nonprofit that generates revenue through events. You can imagine how much we appreciate your donation during these difficult times. To learn more about this and live stream programs, we invite you to check our website for a complete listing. For today's program, we're accepting questions for our speakers through chat on YouTube. There is a chat window on the right side of the video window. And now I am happy and proud to introduce the three members of our program. Bill Guyton is a senior leader within the international agribusiness and nonprofit organizations who is committed to leading the creation and implementation of global sustainability best practices. Throughout his career, he has been recognized for his ability to create public-private partnerships, as well as to develop resilient supply chains and community-based programs. Prior to his current assignments, he was the founder and CEO of the World Cocoa Foundation. He is on the board of the Fine Chocolate Industry Association. And in addition to his successful career in leadership, he serves on the advisory board for the World Food Law Institute and is a member of the Alliance End Hunger. He is also a member of the Association for International Agriculture and Development. Sam Mawator works as a senior advisor on the Cocoa Campaign at Mighty Earth, an environmental NGO based in Washington, D.C., to push the global chocolate industry to end cocoa-driven deforestation in West Africa. He has been working on natural resources and local communities in Ghana for the past 15 years. He led the civil society campaign to reform forest law and policy in Ghana to end deforestation and illegal logging. He is also at the College of Earth, Oceans, and Atmospheric Sciences at Oregon State University. And Tim McCollum is a founder and CEO of Beyond Good. In 1999, McCollum traveled to Madagascar as a Peace Corps volunteer. More than 20 years later, that experience still colors Beyond Good's mission and model. Today, Beyond Good is the only brand in the U.S. making chocolate at source in Africa. By manufacturing product in Africa, Beyond Good is redefining quality and sustainable uh, say, hmm, sustainability for the global chocolate industry. McCollum has also been recognized by Food and Wine Magazine's 40 Under 40 list of Americans, Changing the Way We Live, and named a leader of change by the United Nations. Okay. Chocolate brings to mind many images, flavors, and memories. According to one source, the total value of all traded cocoa in 2016 was $12 billion, and the sales of all of the finished goods was $100 billion. According to the same source, five companies are responsible for more than half of the branded chocolate, and just three other companies grind nearly two-thirds of the, of the world's chocolate beans. In today's media, many concerns are expressed in regards to sustainability, climate change, deforestation, child labor, the value of the farmer's labor and their families, and the complexities of the price paid for cocoa beans. So let's start off with Bill. As an agricultural economist, you've worked in many agricultural supply chains. What are some of the unique aspects and challenges facing the cocoa sector? Great, great, Frank. Well, first of all, I wanted to thank you personally, as well as the, the Commonwealth Club for inviting me to be part of this panel. And it's a real honor for me to, to talk with on the same panel with Samuel and, and Tim as well. Um, as you mentioned, I've been involved in cocoa for many years, and cocoa is a really interesting crop. It's, it's a tropical tree crop, and it grows about 20 degrees north and south of the equator. So there's, there's a very narrow band where the crop actually uh, thrives. And that poses some unique challenges to growing it and to uh, the value chain for, for cacao. 
So right now, about 70% or more of the cocoa comes from West Africa. Uh, so there's a heavy concentration of, of cocoa farming that happens in that geographic area. That's a part of the world where there's a lot of pressure uh, for for def on deforestation. Um, there's problems as well on, on child labor. Um, so, so those are some of the, the challenges. Another problem is that about a third of the crop each year is just is destroyed from diseases and pests so uh so that's also a unique challenge um so what what we need to do is is to see how we can best address these problems uh work with companies of all different sizes large and small um to overcome um the environmental and and social uh, problems that are facing the crop before um, before I, I, I conclude the question, I just wanted to qu quickly show some photographs to some of your viewers who may not know what cocoa trees look like. So I, as I mentioned before, it's the size of about the size of an apple tree, and the pods grow uh, not only on the the branches but also the trunks of the cocoa tree. And you can see there in the photograph some pods that are growing on, on a on a tree in Madagascar, and each one of those pods contains about thirty or forty beans. So you crack open the pods, uh, they're dried, they're fermented usually at the farm level, and then they're transported uh, from there to, to the, on, on, on lorries or trucks to the, the ports and then shipped um, that way over to the final uh, market. So, um, so with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Frank. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so Sam, I have a question for you. How has Mighty Earth worked to transform the industry to conserve and restore forests and to end the deforestation that is rapidly occurring? Thank you very much, Frank, um, for the question. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks to the Commonwealth for inviting me to this um, panel. Um, when you look at Mighty Earth as um, an environmental NGO, our work across the commodities has been simple. We want to break the links between industry or big companies and deforestation. You look at soil, you have a problem. You look at palm oil, you have a problem. You look at rubber and there are problems. And these are fundamental. It's about conversion of forests for alternative use. Um, some of them are necessary, most of them are because they are food commodities that we need um, for, for, for our daily lives, but how do we do that sustainably? I think that's a question that you've posed to all of us. Um, in the cocoa sector, um, the biggest challenge until 2016 was that deforestation was never considered a major challenge. It wasn't because it wasn't a challenge, but the recognition wasn't there. And um, I, I think um, when you look at some of the commitments which have been made in the past, um, I think attention started coming around 2015 during the New York Declaration and then climate change mitigation through Red Plus. Those processes started highlighting the impact of certain industries, particularly cocoa. Um, but, but I think the industry started paying more attention from 2015 onwards. And that is also when Mighty Earth started a very big campaign, a big push around illegal deforestation and deforestation generally in in West Africa. Most of our work, uh, we in most of our work, we focus on Ivory Coast and Ghana. And it's interesting that I come from Ghana. Um, when you look at forest loss over the last 50 years, there's up to 80% of forest cover loss in Ghana. is about 90% in Cote d'Ivoire. Um, agriculture is one of the main drivers. Of course, you have logging, illegal logging, all these challenges are there. But one big driver is conversion to agriculture. And here you have cocoa playing a very, very important role. Um, the deforestation is done by farmers at their local level. The drivers, um, I'm not sure we have time to talk about all the drivers, but essentially it is local farmers who are, for different reasons, being pushed to convert forests, including protected areas and forest reserves, to cocoa plantations. Um, the, the challenge until 2019 was industry saw it as a third-party problem. It wasn't their problem. Until 2016, 2017 onwards, when Mighty Air and some of my other colleagues started pushing the industry, raising the, the issue to the front bend and had, hey, we need industry to act. Um, and this was based on some of the successes we had achieved in oil palm, in other sectors. 
where some of the few leading companies wanted to be transformative. They wanted to transform the sector and therefore they took the initiative with civil society support. So similarly in our work, we got a few companies who said, listen, we recognize the problem, we need to address it. And by so doing, we're able to push a lot more companies into addressing that. Um, I think the biggest transformative effort in the industry so far to address deforestation is the Cocoa and Forest Initiative. I'm sure Bill might have had a hand in it. But for now, it, it appears that is the best vehicle to address or the best vehicle with the best potential to address cocoa and forest um, or the links between cocoa and deforestation. What we have been doing my, at Mighty Ed is one, to track company commitments around this CFI, this cocoa and forest initiative. One, we want companies not just to make commitments. We want them to keep to their word and actually commit to it. Um, since 2019, we've been producing annual reports to see how companies are faring. Our latest report came about two weeks ago on Valentine's Day, and we're looking at the state of deforestation in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. And the statistics that we are, or the using our remote sensing and field data collection, we realized that deforestation is dropping in Cote d'Ivoire, but it's still a problem. I mean, about 19,000 hectares of forest um, since 2019 lost to cocoa, mostly cocoa. Um, in Ghana, it's the problem is not reducing so fast because um, about is it 39,000 hectares was lost between 20, 2019 and 2021. So, so that is how Mighty Earth is trying to work to draw attention to the deforestation problem. It, it's enough for companies or it's good for companies to make commitments, but somebody must hold them to account. And that is where Mighty Earth, we have been doing most of our work. We want to hold companies to account. Last year, we saw huge progress uh, from the CFI report. Individual companies coming together to say that they planted over 6 million trees across Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Sorry, 10 million trees across Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, which is huge and massive. Agroforestry is, is picking up. Um, but the fact is, we need to make sure that it's not, it's more, it goes beyond just planting trees. I mean, from, from any, agric any agriculturist or any planter will know that planting is just the start of it nurturing the tree, making sure that they actually survive and perform their function. That is the ultimate. So for now, we, we applaud companies when they say they have committed X amount of money and they have planted X amount or X million of trees. But we need to go beyond it. We, we need to start looking at survival rates. And that is where most of the work of Mighty Earth is, is focused on. So primarily, Mighty Earth is just trying to push industry. Industry is already in that direction, but we also want to give them the edge to continue that work to end deforestation in, in cocoa-growing regions of the world. Um, I'm, I'm sure I can tell you more about it. Um, maybe one other thing is that we, we also publish our chocolates um, report card. Or we call it the Easter scorecard. It, it's essentially a, a, an, an assessment of the major brands and retailers in chocolate, um, we are assessing seven different categories. We're looking at their environmental responsiveness. We're looking at their commitment to agroforestry. We're looking at traceability. We're looking at commitments to governance indicators. So we just rank them based on who is performing well and who is terribly or who is terrible in any of these. Our grand prizes are always, or yeah, the grand prizes are the Golden Egg Award, which recognizes companies for being transformative, for leading the pack. Um, we don't say they are the best. If they are the best, then it means we wouldn't have any more environmental problems in cocoa. But at least there is uh, Primo's Enterprise. They are the first among equals. They are showing the way blazing the trail. That is good. And usually our worst prices, we, we call them rotten eggs. We give to the companies that are showing a lot of, or that, that are not showing progress. And essentially what we want to do with those scorecards is we want consumers to be, be mindful of those reports when they get to the supermarket. We want them to use their voting power to make those choices. Reward companies that are doing well and punish companies that are not doing well. In that way, we can move industries collectively towards addressing problems of deforestation and, and other problems like child labor, um, pharma poverty. Um, so maybe let me just end it here for now before I, I run all the time. Well, I, I have a follow-up question and I'm going to ask you later, but um, 
Let me go to Tim. What are some of the unique aspects and challenges facing the manufacturers of chocolate? Um, that's a, a good question, Frank. And there's no silver answer uh, or silver bullet. Um, and if, if the question is specifically around sustainability, I, I think honestly the biggest challenge has to do with the business model within the industry itself. I think you had noted in the intro that it's a hundred million dollar hundred um, over a hundred billion dollars a year as a global chocolate industry. It's massive and it's been operating on the same business model since its advent. And that model prevents um, a lot of good work from happening. Um, and so if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share a couple slides. I'll be quick about it, but I, I do want to illustrate yeah, what that model looks like. Um, and a little bit about our, our business as well. So yeah, the brand is beyond good. Yeah. So ch global chocolates over 130 billion, it's massive and the size of the industry is important. Um, obviously the, the problems associated with it are quite big. And in my view, the bigger an industry is, um, the harder it is to change. You look at cocoa farming, I think it's one of the largest inequities in the global food system where you have um, three to four million cocoa farmers who don't make enough mar money farming cocoa to feed themselves or their families. So it's it's not a sustainable livelihood in many parts of Africa. Sam had just hit on, you know, here's actually some info from Mighty Earth, Sam, we use a lot. Um, deforestation in Ivory Coast is pretty considerable um, elsewhere in, in the value chain. Um, so there's a big environmental problem associated with it. There's a big poverty problem associated with it. Um, there's a lot of attention. And I think companies and, and organizations like Mighty Earth and a lot of the work Bill's done is driving attention. Um, but a lot of the attention the media addresses gets a lot of big dollars from big chocolate. But um, in some ways, it's hard to see the progress. And I just want to illustrate the supply chain because I think when I do this, it, it becomes clear, at least when we figured this out, that um, the problem might be systemic to the business model. So you have cocoa farmers, primarily in West Africa. It's a small holder crop, which means your average farmer might have one to two hectares. And in order to mobilize the world's cocoa crop from the global south to the global north, where factories are, it has to pass through this pretty complex system. Um, and sometimes there's three or four layers of middlemen between the cocoa farmer and the factory processing the chocolate. Um, and the way I, we've always looked at the problems, one is transparency. So the companies manufacturing chocolate can't always tell you who farm the cocoa that they're, they're dumping into their machines. Um, severe farmer poverty. And it's really those those two that combine um, for deforestation and child labor and actually more problems beyond these four. Um, and what we've done over the years is figure out how to put a factory on the ground in Africa. And the importance is you, you can see there's zero middlemen standing between the, the farmer and the factory. And what that does first and foremost is it gets more income to the farmers. Um, and so in our case, farmers make about two to three X per kg than um, in many value chains. Um, and so um, we've got close to 92 farmers in our network, um, direct relationships, money goes from our pocket into their pocket. In, in a country like Madagascar, that's actually far poorer than than other West African countries. Farmers are making close to 4X um, GDP per capita. So they're doing pretty well. Um, and we've established direct, again, uh, commercial relationships and transparency. In terms of solving problems, um, poverty is the first one. And what we found too, is once we've unlocked that door, um, it, it opens the door to solving other problems related to the environment. Madagascar is quite unique in that 85% of the plants and animals exist nowhere else in the world. And so we've started to pioneer the use of cocoa agroforestry in Madagascar 
um, as a way to preserve uh, many of its endemic and endangered species like lemurs and, and chameleons. Um, another piece that um, touches Bill's world a bit is that um, there are different types of chocolate um, and they have different flavors and different qualities. And um, you can make a case that the road to sustainability in the industry runs through higher quality chocolate, um, which we might touch on a little bit later, but just wanted to end with a statistic. When we started our business about 13 years ago, this was a fact, 70% of the world's cocoa comes from Africa, um, but less than 1% of the world's chocolate is actually made there. That's still true today. Um, and I think that cuts at the business model itself. And until that changes the business model for the industry, it's hard to see how a, a lot of quick progress can be made. Um, uh, if things are to stay, they are in terms of the way the business industry works. I think incremental change is possible, but um, probably not rapid change. Okay, I have a, a question from the audience that I think works pretty well here. Uh, and I'm going to address it to Sam. Uh, can you compare the CO2 capture of uh, regular forests that are found in West Africa as compared to plantations? Um, so then again, it depends on the form of plantation we're talking about. Will will this be a cocoa plantation? Yeah, cocoa plantation. Um, they, they do not compare. Of course, natural forests will always be. I do not have all the statistics, but generally what we know is that the forest is not just serving as a carbon sink. There are several additional services that it will be providing for people. Um, you wouldn't get all those services necessarily from a plantation. I think I'll best leave it here because I don't have all the facts and the answers to, um, to respond to that question. Um, I don't know if Bill will have. Bill might have done some more work on carbon capture uh bill samuel I'll, I, I'll defer back to you i think you're you're more the expert than i am on that but we probably could follow up and provide the uh, uh re respond to the question that was asked yeah okay. i mean i'm happy to follow i mean call how to get, get back to that person with much more detail but all i know is when it comes to cocoa and agriculture um the, the big push in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, is, is around agroforestry. Um, and we're talking about dynamic agroforestry, not um, plant a few trees in your, in your cocoa plantation, and that is it. Um, we, we need it to be more mixed up. We need greater diversity. Monoculture cocoa is one of the big problems, um, which is part of the old model, which we want to change from. So having a very mixed mosaic of trees on your farm it it gets us a little closer to mimic uh, it gets us a big it all tries to mimic the original conditions under which uh, or before cocoa was was planted um so so the path towards improved or better carbon capture um from how we understand it is through dynamic agroforestry not just any planting of trees among cocoa okay um I have a question. I think I'm, I'm going to give it to, to Bill, and, and maybe you can exp, uh, explain this better. But, but there are mega traders in, in the uh, cocoa industry. Can you explain what that is and what it's all about? Well, I, I, I guess I'm not familiar with the term mega trader, but I guess it's a multinational trading. These are large-scale traders that usually uh, supply cocoa beans or byproducts to large manufacturers and sometimes even to smaller companies as well. So they're involved in the direct purchase of cocoa from, from the cocoa producing countries. Uh, a lot of times they'll purchase through, through middlemen or through um, um, different sort of, of purchasers along the way. A lot of times they'll, the cocoa will trade, will exchange hands several times as, as, um, as Tim was mentioning earlier in the in the value chain before it actually gets to the port, so um, that tends to be the system in in particularly with some of the the larger traders. 
There are also some smaller, much more specialized traders that work uh, within the fine chocolate industry as well that, that can more target the exact types of flavor beans that particular companies are looking for. And then you have, have yet other companies like Beyond Good, uh, Tim's company, which is actually vertically integrated all the way back from the farm to the, to the finished product. Okay. Uh, Tim, can you, can you explain to him what he just mentioned about vertic- uh, vertically integrated so that we can all have a better grasp of what that is? Yeah. And I'll just, Frank, if you don't mind, I'll hit on a point too that Bill made related to the original question. I hadn't heard the term mega trader before either, but there's essentially three companies that control the trade in West Africa, um, Cargill, Barry Calvo, and Olam. They're not brands that most consumers are aware of, but cho- like their cocoa one way or another flows through most products into the US uh, in Europe. And that that's an issue in the industry to have so much consolidation into three um you know, multinational companies. Um, vertical integration um, for us, yes, it's it's we touch everything, um, and it's essentially a closed loop business. In that, um, we buy our cocoa beans directly from a farmer, and then we process those beans into a finished chocolate bar, all within the country of Madagascar, um, and so that. Um, it has its unique challenges operating a factory in a country like Madagascar, but it also means we can control every step of the process. Um, and for us, what's most important is that direct relationship with the farmer. And the point I was, I was making earlier where I, I think it's actually almost physically impossible for a, a big company to solve this problem um, because they're not buying um, beans directly from farmers. Um, they're buying it from an importer and that importer is buying it from an exporter and that exporter is buying it from a middleman. And there's four people sitting between Nestle or Hershey's and the cocoa farmer. And so it's going to be very hard for Hershey's to solve this problem. Um, and so in our case, we eliminated all the, the middlemen. And so we feel like we can solve problems by working directly with farmers much more efficiently um, and then from our factory, Madagascar product gets shipped to the States. Um, and then it gets distributed to, to retailers like Whole Foods Market. Thank you. Uh, Sam, I have a question for you. I wanted to ask you when you've introduced the concept of deforestation, you mentioned a responsibility for the companies that, that harvest the product. I didn't hear much mentioned about the governments of either Ghana or Ivory Coast. What is their role in this? What should their role be? And why is this deforestation continuing if it's happening in national parks and and so forth? Um, Thank you, Frank. That is a big question. Um, So for most of my work that I did in Ghana, my target was primarily the government of Ghana. I didn't really care about companies because when it comes to mandates, is a government that is responsible. Um, it's it's when I started working from this side that I have shifted a lot more attention to company responsibility. Um, and and you're right, governments need to take up responsibility. You you take the problem in Cote d'Ivoire; it was mostly driven by the conflict situation they had. People had to resort to the forest because the conflict had displaced them from their houses, from their homes. It was only in the shelter of the forest that they found refuge, and that is where they also planted. So about 13 forest reserves or protected areas because of the conflict and because of the thirst to plant cocoa. I mean, those two just go hand in hand. You find refuge in the forest, then you plant. Some also just invaded a forest and planted them. And because their government allowed them to, that was oh, that continued to happen. In the case of Ghana, um, you, you would have the problem of... Um, tree tenure or land ownership or well, let me let me let me just frame them all we have protected areas and forest reserves which are not so, which are no go areas for for farming um, and you have a lot of private farmlands all around protected areas and forests um, in ghana the biggest problem is that most of these private lands which were once forested have all been converted to cocoa production um, 
um, that the, the state has very little mandate when it comes to what people do with their private lands. But that is where the state has also failed to provide incentive for people to leave forest trees or timber trees standing on on their farms. Um, I mentioned to you earlier, I did some work on illegal logging for many years. And one single policy that can transform and or transform just the problem of deforestation in Ghana is just giving local people ownership of trees. Um, it's It's been found in different researches since 1992, even before I entered the forest arena, that that is one single solution to most of these problems. Um, I, I pushed government to the level of recognizing a tree reform process in the 2012 forest and wildlife policy, pushed government to implement the process. Um, I think since 2019, it has stalled. But I think it still needs a little bit more push. And my colleagues in civil society in Ghana are still pushing that. Um, government also needs to tend to protect forests or they need to protect forests a little bit better than they are currently doing. Um, and unfortunately, when they also try to protect forests in their real sense, they are overzealous. In Cote d'Ivoire, we've seen instances where government officers or the military was just unleashed into protected areas. And the violence and then the abuse of human rights that go with it was just unimaginable. We we need government to be able to have firm policies which are clear. Um, one of the biggest challenges for me, I see, is the cocoa board in itself is much more interested in producing cocoa and meeting its cocoa production targets rather than addressing some of the environmental issues. Um Holistically, what I also see in most producer countries is the chocolate industry is too quiet about the problem of deforestation. So they are either they either don't want to brush that subject with governments, or when those conversations are going on, they want to say, okay, this is an internal matter which we don't want to um, get involved in. Um, through the CFI process, as I mentioned, there has been some opportunity for governments, civil society, industry, and even pharma groups to talk about the problem of and in deforestation. Then again, I still think that there is a lot more governments should do. Um, when you look at the cocoa sector and then the revenues which are coming in, um, if based on who is getting much, or let me rephrase, whoever is getting so much from the revenue from the cocoa sector needs a bigger responsibility. And that is why I think the focus on chocolate companies is very, very justified. Um, you talk about the mega traders. I mean, you also have to add e-com, as Sukdan, and then I think, uh, what's your name, Bloomers or Fiji? Fiji Oil. Fiji Oil is the largest grinder in the U.S. So so all these are major earners who are earning so much. The value that of the, of a, how do we call it, of a, of a chocolate bar that goes to the farmer and the producer government is just about 3%. So if the in industry is valued at about $140 billion, it's just three or four percent of that that goes to government and then to producers, cocoa farmers. The rest of it is distributed between the transporters, the mega traders, and then you have the re sorry the brands and the retailers. In fact, the retailers are making way more, followed by the brands, and then you come down to governments and and cocoa farmers. So, is there a lot more governments in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire need to do? Oh, yes, they need to do a lot more. Do they have resources to do that? I doubt it. Um, where would they get that resources from? I think that is where industry would need to chip in and pay a fair share to protect forest restoration and then to protect the existing forests. Um, one of the biggest challenges I've also seen with this Cocoa and Forest Initiative, which is a flagship problem, uh, program to address deforestation, is that maybe I may be wrong, but it looks like government made commitment or government made commitment with the understanding that industry will cover the cost or industry will pay a fair share of the cost. Um, and now governments have made huge commitments, ambitious commitments. They don't have the money to, to cover it. And industry is saying, okay, we'll just treat the commitments as an a la carte. We'll pay for this, pay for that, pay for this in our production area. That is a very fragmented approach to solving the problem. So I think government needs to do a lot more stronger policy. Collectively, industry, civil society in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire need to push government to address those problems. But chocolate companies also have a fair share to, to pay or to do to address that problem. Um, 
Thank you. Tim, uh, you mentioned that Madagascar has unique challenges. Um, can you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, for those in the audience who've been to Africa um, or other less developed countries, you, you might be able to conceptualize it. For those who haven't, it's a little bit harder, but um, from just a infrastructure point of view, um, Madagascar is about the size of, of California in terms of geography, but for all intents and purposes, it has about six paved roads. Um, and there isn't a reliable grid to deliver energy. Um, so basic things like transporting cocoa from point A to point B um, can be difficult and challenging at times. Um, and that's probably the, the biggest challenge I think to our model is, is um, reliable infrastructure. Um, it's also quite poor um, almost by any measure. So it, in terms of rate of extreme poverty, it's the poorest country in the world. Um, average GDP per capita, it's one of the 10 poorest countries in the world. Almost any way you slice it, it's, it's extremely poor even compared to um, country, other countries in Africa. I think the biggest challenge is actually um, the pace at which the country moves um, and the pace at which we move. So a very demanding consumer market in the US. Um, I always think, um, you know, our country moves at the rate with which the average person gets from point A to point B. So I'm, I'm on the East Coast, so I have to use an East Coast reference, but if I travel from New York City to Washington, D.C. on 95, I'm, I'm traveling 75 miles an hour um, down a highway. And that's the rate with which our country moves. In Madagascar, the average mode of transportation is an ox-drawn cart that probably moves about one mile an hour. And so the, it's just a different pace of life um, and trying to marry up our consumer market here in the U.S. with the pace with which you know, Madagascar operates is a challenge, but it's, it's one we embraced and we didn't know everything we were getting into when we set out with the business, but, um, in many reasons, that's why we exist. So every challenge that comes our way, we tend to embrace it and, um, treat it with, um, some patience and a sense of humor as well. Uh, Bill, you, you've worked for many years in with public private partnerships. Uh, how, how can that work in the chocolate industry? Do you have a model or an explanation? Is that a possibility? Yes. I mean, there, there's many public-private partnerships that have happened in the past. Um, I was involved with a lot of them uh, prior with, um, with some of the large multinationals in West Africa, looking at large-scale programs that would, to address child labor, um, to look at deforestation and how to overcome some of those challenges. And, you know, I think that's where you get some of the best solutions is when you look not only within the private sector or companies working together with each other, but also bringing governments to the table as well as civil society and farmers themselves to look at, at solutions. Um, a lot of these partnerships over the years have, have been really um, focused on working at large scale with, with large companies. And one of the, the new and more exciting projects that I've been involved with recently has been with the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, or FCIA, which includes companies like Tim's, Beyond Good, and, and others, uh, in a project in Madagascar, which brings together not giant multinationals, but smaller and medium-sized companies um, who tend to be more innovative just by nature to, to look at different models of um, improving the quality um, of cacao and looking at growing it in a more sustainable way. So this new program in Madagascar, which is funded uh, by U.S. Agency for International Development and also funded by the companies themselves under the uh, implementation of Catholic Relief Services and, and other partners, is looking at ways that over 2,000 farmers will benefit from improved uh, production and post-harvest handling practices and better understanding some of the environmental challenges 
looking at diversification of their farms so that uh, they're not growing just cacao, but they're also growing other types of tree crops, such as spices and vanilla, as well as other timber crops, uh, in a way that's going to protect um, the fragile biodiversity in, in Madagascar. So I, I think the thing that excites me most about it is that this time we're actually working with companies that are more vertically integrated, um, such as, as uh, Beyond Good. Uh, we, the other companies that are also involved in it are Guitar Chocolate, which is based in California, and Atkinson's uh, Organic, which has a, a farm there and is looking at different ways of improving some of the social conditions of, of the farmers that they work with. So, uh, you know, I applaud these kind of efforts. I think that's where you're going to see the real innovations happen is with the, some of these smaller companies that are willing to take risks and to look at new ways, new models of, of growing cocoa and um, producing fine chocolate. Thank you. Um, I have a question. I'm not sure for whom, but I'll throw this out there. Uh, you mentioned, Bill mentioned USAID, AID. Is there any other ways that our government can help in lowering deforestation, per possibly preventing child labor being maybe rampant, and also uh, to help farmers have a greater sense of profit and participation? You know, I, I look at some of the other partners out there. You, the U.S. government has, has really, uh, I think, done a, a formidable job in, in supporting cacao production and value chains, not only in West Africa uh, through U.S. Department of Agriculture and U.S. Agency for International De uh, Development, um, but also in, in Latin America and Southeast Asia. So I, I think that the wonderful thing about these agencies is that they can be conveners. They can bring together diverse companies looking at common solutions and also bringing in you know, nonprofit organizations, NGOs, and and civil society like like Catholic Relief Services or Lutheran World Relief and others that that really understand the local communities and and can work with local organizations. Tim or Sam, do you have anything that you can add? Uh, maybe I can I can go. Um, is one of the biggest challenges you find in the that I have found in the cocoa sector is one, the business model, which Tim spoke eloquently about. Um, embedded in that is the power structure within the cocoa industry, which we don't often talk about. So farmers are vulnerable, farmers are poor, farmers are weak. Let us find solutions for them. Um, so most of the solutions are oh, let's try a certification. Let's help them do such and such and such, and then they'll get better. Um, farmers all of a sudden need to change their business practices. They need to do a lot more. There's, there's a lot more burden. Um, they get paid some amount of premium, um, which if I'm a farmer, I'm not going to be too impressed with what I'm getting based on what I'm doing extra. But you, you see, most of these solutions are, are, are serving farmers. We serve them to farmers. What, what I think is lacking is getting farmers themselves to fix, to find a problem or to define their problem and then to fix it. When you talk about climate change as a problem for farmers, a farmer doesn't really think of that. What he thinks primarily is how much money am I getting at the end of the harvest season? Um, of course, that is a very narrow way of looking at, at the farmer problem. But what I think needs to happen more is farmers need to be able to band together to be able to define their solution and then work those solutions um a farm no farmer would want at least from what i have seen in my field work that i've done a lot farm a lot of farmers don't want their kids to be in cocoa farming because why, why it's you it's a life of poverty they see young people coming from the capital doing nice blue collar jobs or doing something innovative with them in most of my work with farmers they look at me and it's like i want i want you to talk to my kids because i want them to be like you educated they they speak good english or they, they can work. I mean, they can help people. They understand the law. And I think that is a kind of transformation farmers want. Um, so, yes, paying them a little bit more would help helping farmers actually get a living income, get close to it. 
but then for me it's it's about empowering the farmer if if the farmer really understands that this farming that he is doing he is connected to a global supply chain and in this global supply chain he he has a voice in it and not just somebody who's receiving 3% of it and if they can mobilize that voice we're talking about 5 million farmers so if you can mobilize 5 million farmers or even less and then they can change national policy i mean they they can they can bond together in such a way that they can change national policy i have seen that work in illegal logging i've seen communities who based on a tiny understanding of forest law and community rights have been able to block log legal loggers illegal loggers from harvesting in their area and most of their responses oh we didn't know we didn't know we had these rights and for me i think that's what is lacking farmers need to be empowered they need to be able to bond together um no amount of government fixing deforestation or companies fixing deforestation or child labor will end it. You need farmers to be in a position where they have, they set their own priorities and then they're able to earn better income from the trade. And then they will make the kind of ne- the necessary investments in their farms that they need to transform it. Um, there's a lot of leakage or the political inequity in, in, in the chocolate industry or cocoa chocolate industry is... It's just something that we don't often talk about. Um, I think most of my research um, in OSU will focus on that question of poverty and trying to frame it from that political ecology lens. So maybe that's just one theory. For me, if we want to really improve or transform cocoa production, then it, it should begin with the farmer, empowering him not just to produce more cocoa, but empowering him as an actor in the chocolate cocoa value chain so that they are getting much more value and not just a farm gate price at the end of the farm season. I had something. Go ahead, Bill. You know, just to respond to Samuel, again, I'd like to stress that I think if you want to make the changes, you've got to look at where the innovations are going to happen. And the, the large multinationals have a system set up a lot of it focused on West Africa, looking at volume, looking at how much cocoa they can get to to make the products that they want. Where I see innovation happening is within the fine chocolate industry, which is only 5 or 10% of the industry. It's a top tier that's producing this fine quality, better chocolate. And that's where the innovations uh, will occur. It's It's companies that are vertically integrated. It's those they're looking at new ways of growing cocoa and ensuring too that that the the genetics are are preserved for fine flavor uh, whereas in 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 you know some of the larger companies you're looking at at clonal material genetic uh, research on on cacao that produces a lot the trees can produce a lot versus um, again fine chocolate where you're looking at how do you find the best flavor quality beans such as those found in in uh in certain parts of the world and, and just a quick one yeah. on that I, I think the fine chocolate industry is doing is bringing way more transformation than the bulk industry will ever dream of so i i, I don't think there's a problem with the fine flavor it, I, I think it's just the pickup if the big industry or big chocolate will even move half of the pace that fine chocolate is moving a lot of the problems would have ended long ago. Um, so that, that I think that is, I t- completely agree with you. Innovation, we're going to see a lot more in the, in the medium, small, medium and small scale chocolate industry. But the big producers are a big headache. And for now, um, they control a lot yeah. more, a lot more of the market. So, so Tim, um, Bill, just to be sure, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think it, the, the point is it it takes all angles and perspectives. It's a, it's a big, big problem and it takes top down thinking, but to Samuel's earlier point, it really is a, a grassroots problem and the solution needs to be at the grassroots level. Um, and what we've seen is when you can get a farmer to flip a switch where they, they no longer think of themselves as a farmer, but they think of themselves as a cocoa entrepreneur they take control of their destiny and it's simple financial incentives. In our case, we always go in with a very competitive price per KG, 
but we also guarantee the farmer, we're going to buy everything that you can bring to us that meets our buying specification. And that's what turns them into an entrepreneur. Oh, if I go out and, and replant my land and think about this differently and, you know, convert some of my rice land to cocoa forestry, they're going to make more money. And at the end of the day, that's, I think, the ultimate human motivator. And once you can solve the financial predicament for a farmer, um, that's where everything else becomes possible. But the farmer's got to not be bought into your solution. They got to look at it as though this is coming from them and, and their own hard work and their own two hands. Samuel also mentioned, you know, the value chain. Um, one thing we did haphazardly, it wasn't a premeditated program, but we started to bring cocoa farmers into a factory. And again, that's only really possible if you're making chocolate at origin. Um, but we started to, to invite farmers into the chocolate factory, show them what the process looks like. And a light bulb went off in their head. And they took the, the lessons they learned at the factory back to the farm. And they're more motivated simply because for the first time, they understand what happens to the cocoa after they sell it. And now they're feeling like they're, you know, part of something bigger and something that maybe their parents never got to do. Um, and what we're seeing is actually a little bit contrary. I, I know it's a problem in West Africa, but we're actually seeing younger children who go and get their high school um, diploma, which is a rare achievement in Madagascar, come back and want to be a farmer because they can make more money farming cocoa than they can go into the city. And that's kind of, to, to us, that's what real sustainability is. Um, and then just one more, I wanted to hit on something very poignant that, that Bill said around flavor and, and product quality. Um, what he you know refers to as a fine chocolate industry, craft chocolate, single origin chocolate, the emphasis is on the quality itself, which means you're, as a maker, you're outsourcing a different type of cocoa bean than what the Nestle's and, and Hershey's of the world are sourcing. And you're, you're making and marketing a higher quality chocolate bar that, that sells at a little higher price, but it's in most cases a, a dark chocolate bar. In the case of the big players, they're sourcing commodity cocoa because at the end of the day, it's going into a milk chocolate product. And so a Hershey's milk chocolate bar is 10% cocoa and it's 90% milk and sugar. So you have no incentive to source a higher quality cocoa bean because you're just going to throw it into milk and sugar. Um, and that's where it's going to be hard for the I think the big industry players to find a sustainable path is if you look at the way the whole thing is set up, there, there, there are no incentives anywhere to get a farmer to focus on, um, on quality and, and, um, you know, variety of cocoa versus just a commodity product that has kind of been invented over the years. Um, but it's, it is a very layered, complicated issue. And like I said, I don't think there's any one solution or one angle. It's, at the end of the day, multiple perspectives need to, to figure this one out. Uh, Tim, for you, I have a, a, a not a question, but a comment extolling the virtues of your 92% cacao that it's that this person absolutely loves it and adores it. Uh, I have a second question from somebody else. When you, when you make the chocolate bars in your factory, are they then put in the, the packaging there or does that happen in the United States? No, that's, that's all done at the factory. Um, and early on, yeah, I think you mentioned in the intro that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Madagascar. So our impetus was let's do a finished product in Madagascar. And that meant everything. Like, so what leaves the country is a finished chocolate bar that goes directly to a shelf in a, in a retailer. And our thinking was purely macro level. You know, this is, I think the the economic challenge of Africa writ large is so much of its um, economy is based on the export of raw material with no added value. And so Africa is a leading exporter or producer of cocoa, of bananas, of rubber, uh, of coffee, but very little added value. So our initial thinking was to just do the whole thing in Madagascar. So you're sourcing sugar locally and you're
sourcing packaging locally and everything else. Um, so yeah, that's the whole basis of the business is everything gets done locally all the way up into a finished chocolate bar. Um, so if you, you have bought our 92%, for example, um, everything down to the packaging is done in Madagascar. One last question for, for Tim, I think. Uh, there's a question about, is it true that higher quality chocolate comes from Central and South America? Um, yes. It's, it's as a matter of fact, um, there's also really high quality chocolate that can come from, from Ghana and Ivory Coast. Generally speaking, um, what Bill referred to as fine flavor or a single origin product, it's not coming from West Africa. Um, and you have very unique varieties of cocoa in pockets of, um, you know, Central South America, countries like Madagascar, and even um, Southeast Asian, South Pacific countries, where cocoa has not been as commoditized as it has been in West Africa, you'll find a little more flavor and cocoa from those origins. And, and just to add real quickly onto that, uh, the origin of cacao or cocoa is 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 uh, the Americas is south of Central and South America, and that's where you tend to find more uh, genetic diversity as well in the crop. So you're bound to find more flavors there. But as Tim said, over time, um, you know we've seen cocoa being transported and grown in in many different parts of of the world, and what we're we're seeing is that you can find fine flavor cacao now in in all parts of the world. It's, it's possible to find it in Southeast Asia, as well as a lot in Latin America and and, and parts of Africa as well. Okay. Um, one, one listener would like to know, what percentage of chocolate is consumed in Africa? If if 100% goes out, is, is made, what percent roughly is consumed by Africans? Less than one. I don't know what you guys think. There's here's here's the what if you Googled that you wouldn't find any info on it, which tells you there's not enough statistically to to register. But that but that being said, there are some companies and Samuel, you may know of this as well, in, in Ghana and in Cote d'Ivoire, some small chocolate shops that have opened up. So, you know, little by little, you know, we're seeing a little uh, some expansion in, in the consumer markets there, it's very small right now. I mean, so in Ghana, for instance, I know um, since, nine, since 2000, um, before I think February, Valentine's Day has been rebranded as National Chocolate Day. And the whole idea is to encourage a lot more people to consume chocolate. Um, there, there are some chocolate companies in Ghana, um, but I guess the tastes are different. I mean, I love the taste in Ghana. Um, I brought a few with me when I was coming to school. People tasted it and it's like, no, 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 this is too bitter. It, this, it doesn't have enough milk. It doesn't have enough sugar. <laughs> so, so I guess it's it's also about growing up in preference. I didn't grow up loving chocolate or chocolate drinks. Um, Chocolate was special, so if it's on my birthday and I get it, yoo-hoo, but I wouldn't normally ordinarily buy chocolate. And that's the thing. A lot of farmers also don't buy chocolate. Maybe chocolate drink once in a while, um, but there's potential for growth, and I think that is where a lot of government policy needs to shift towards. It's a lot more consumption than just primary production and export. Unfortunately... Um, uh, I, I don't mean to cut anybody off, but we've reached the point in our program where there's really only time for one more quick comment. Tim, did you have one? Oh, I don't know how quick it is. I was going to ask Sam a question or Bill, if they knew, does Africa have to pay um, a tariff when it imports chocolate that's manufactured in Europe? Do you guys know? I believe the answer is yes, but Samuel, I don't, you, you may know. No, I haven't. I, I know there are tariffs that need to be paid, and that is why um, that has not really hit. Um, anyway, I'm not sure of the exact tariff that needs to be paid. Um, yeah, my understanding is um, the European chocolate industry um, assigns a tariff to import chocolate from Africa, but no tariff to import cocoa. 
and they have an export tariff on chocolate going back in. Um, in other words, it made it very hard for a chocolate industry to emerge in Africa. Um, that's probably not the only reason why a lot of, you know, there isn't large chocolate consumption in Africa, but I think the, um, what could happen is it's, it's one of, we've seen this in Madagascar, um, and a little bit in East Africa, but it is one of the first affordable luxuries as an economy develops. A chocolate bar costs a couple dollars. Someone who gets their first, you know, um, say factory job, you can now afford to buy chocolate. Um, and so chocolate consumption should hopefully rise in Africa, but I'd still say it's quite low. I want to thank all of you. Uh, I would love to continue this conversation for much more time, but we've run out of time. I want to thank Tim, Sam, and Bill for sharing your expertise, your knowledge, your experience. And uh, you've made my life uh, understand more about, I used to live in Cote d'Ivoire, and I've been to Ghana many times, and uh, I won't get into an argument which is better, but I want to thank you very much. We also thank our audiences for joining us today and watching this program. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 119th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.